When you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed. And when you have finished betraying, they will betray you. O Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. At the tumultuous noise, peoples flee. When you lift yourself up, nations are scattered, and your spoil is gathered as the caterpillar gathers. As locusts leap, it is leapt upon. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness, and he will be the stability of your times. Abundance of salvation, wisdom and knowledge, the fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. This is the word of God. This morning is the sixth uh, sermon in a series of seven from that Latin word, Eracross. And Eracross, if you haven't been here all along, I'll just bring you up to speed, it is a Latin word that is used in the Catholic Church um, uh, to signify the week or so before uh, Christmas and the advent of Christ. The word means tomorrow I will come. Tomorrow I will come. And it anticipates the arrival of Jesus Christ. Uh, all of the letters in the word uh, stand for uh, Latin words that are the translation of the names of Jesus in the uh, book of Isaiah. And so we've talked about Emmanuel and we've talked about king, that, that regent word, the R, the O is Oriens or day spring. Uh, we've uh, uh, looked at the key of David. Uh, we uh, last week looked at the, uh, uh, the root of Jesse. And uh, today we're going to look at Adonai. Uh, the, that word, I think, is familiar to many of you. It is uh, a word that means Lord. It means Lord. And the word is used so often in our culture today as a byword. Many of you may have said it this morning. Uh, not thinking because uh, it's just a word that is often used. It is said so often that it has lost its luster in a sense. It's lost its weightiness. And I think by the end of our time together this morning that the word will have regained some traction. It will have uh, regained ground in your mind and in your hearts. Uh, this text brings us to a reality. And here is the reality that in the room this morning are... Uh, the text divides people into three groups, and in the room this morning are people in one of these three places. In this account, there are those who are rebelling against God. It is outright rebellion. Uh, in this account, there are those who are rejecting God, which is not as outright, it is more subtle. And in this account, there are the repentant ones. They all are in the account. Those who are outright rebelling against God, those who are rejecting God, and those who are repentant. And we're somewhere in that. All of us are. Uh, we're somewhere in that. Uh, I, I have the privilege of mentoring and discipling and uh, discipling a young man. And he said this to me this week, which is so indicative of somebody new in the journey. He says, when am I ever going to figure it out? I have no idea. Right? When you get home with the Lord, 
You will be there. And you will have known some things then that you don't know now. We live in a life of repentance, do we not? And so if we look at this, it brings us then to a central word that is crucial in whatever of these places you find yourself. And the word is trust. It is trust. The question for you this morning, and it is a radical, kind of ironic question, do you trust a baby born in a manger? Do you trust a baby born in a manger? That's, the, that's where the rub comes. You see, it's interesting because babies are born trusting, aren't they? Uh, They come into the world as trusting creatures. They assume that mom is going to feed them and dad is going to protect them. And they are going to be in a, a good environment, in a good home, in a good situation. We are born trusting and it seems that we spend the rest of our lives learning how not to trust. That's interesting. We are born trusting, and it seems that we spend the rest of our lives learning how not to trust, or maybe who not to trust. And so to ask you this morning to trust a baby born in a manger is counterintuitive. It doesn't make sense. It isn't intellectual. It doesn't appeal to your reasonable thinking. I I, I admit that from the get-go this morning. It doesn't. This is why to some Jesus was a stepping stone and to others he was a stumbling block. It's why. Uh, we're asking, the Bible is asking us to trust a baby born in a manger. And so if he is trustworthy, and I believe he is, I, I want to deal with three arenas at least in this passage in which he is you number one can trust jesus to destroy your enemies you can trust jesus to destroy your enemies we'll qualify that because i'm afraid as soon as i said that somebody came to your mind who shouldn't have all right so we will qualify the word enemies before we finish this morning uh, the, the context of this is that Judah in the south is in trouble. And as Judah is in the south is in trouble, they have turned to uh, 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 Egypt to defend them from Assyria. So if you picture this on a map, Judah is here. To the west of Judah is Egypt. To the east of Judah is Assyria. And they've looked west and said, Egypt, we need your help. And Sennacherib, who's the king of Assyria, heard of it. And when he did, he became enraged. And so he said, I'll march even farther in. And as he did, Hezekiah, who was by most accounts a godly king, Hezekiah uh, reaches out to Sennacherib and he says, hold up, uh, tell me your price and I'll pay it, whatever it is. And we discover that in 2 Kings 18, 13 through 16. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. 
So we're talking out all the edge, the cities on the perimeter. Uh, Assyria comes in, Sennacherib takes them, and Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Syria at Lachish, saying, I've done wrong. Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. Whatever your price is, name it, I'll pay it. And the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver, 30 talents of gold. Uh, We don't understand that even if we were to try to transpose that into today's economy. But uh, it was a hefty amount. How hefty? Notice this. And Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. This massive temple that Solomon had built that had all the silver instruments and the silver overlay. Hezekiah goes in. He removes it. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorposts that Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. This temple had become quite uh, a central place for all of Israel, and especially for Judah. Israel to the north has fallen. Judah to the south remains. Jerusalem, their capital city. Hezekiah goes into the temple itself and strips it bare. It is humiliating. He sends a wealth to Sennacherib. Many scholars believe that Isaiah 33 was written after the temple was stripped bare. All right, so think of this. Their, their temple is stripped of its silver, it's stripped of its gold. Uh, they've sent it to the Sennacherib, and when Sennacherib got it, guess what he didn't do? He didn't stop. He kept coming. You, you see, you can't make a deal with the devil. That's what we learned from this uh, Uh, Where should Hezekiah have turned? To God. To the God of that temple. To the God of uh, Israel. That's where he should have turned. But rather than do that, he turned to the enemy and tried to make a deal with the enemy. And you just can't do that. I have no intention of being overdramatic this morning. But I want to say to you that Satan cares nothing for you. Nothing. If he can destroy you, he will. He he cares nothing for your family. He cares nothing for your welfare. He, uh, if you belong to God, hates you. You are his bitter enemy. You are his arch rival. You are the threat to, to the kingdom of God growing on the planet. And if he can do anything to take you out and to take you down, he will. He cares nothing for you. You will not benefit ever from making a deal with him. You will not benefit ever from bargaining with him, from trying to reason with him. He may come across as caring, as complicit. He may come across as one who says, sure, I'll do this with you. Sure, I'll go this with you. But when you turn, he will come after you every single time. Why? It is in his nature to undermine you, to undercut you, to destroy you. And so Hezekiah, forgetting that, makes a deal with the devil, with the enemy. So many scholars believe that Isaiah 33 was written. You see, it's the sixth 
in a series of woes between Isaiah 28 and Isaiah 33 that Isaiah writes, and it's woe to Israel, you're going away from God. Woe to Israel, you're going away from God. Woe to you. Stop. Stop. But interestingly here, the woe changes, and it's woe to you, Assyria. There, there are uh, five against Israel and Judah and Jerusalem and one against Assyria. And today's is against Assyria. Now, the reason that uh, Margaret only read verses 1 through 6 is that 1 through 6 appear to be a microcosm of the whole chapter. Like everything that happens in 1 through 6 is spelled out and uh, clarified in the rest of the chapter. So with the Assyrians planted on the hillside, this is what God has to say to them. Ah, you destroyer, who yourself have not been destroyed, you traitor, whom none has betrayed. Talking to Assyria, when you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed. And when you have finished betraying, they will betray you. What is God saying to Assyria? Your day is coming. Your days are numbered. Uh, You are smug. You think all is well. You think you are reigning. You think all is good. You think you are having your day. You are having your way. But news to you, you traitor who have not been betrayed, your day will come. You see, God raised Assyria up to take care of Judah. They didn't know that. They thought they raised themselves up. Uh, They didn't see the hand of God at work. Uh, What does it look like, verse 7, in Israel? This is the effect of sin. This is the effect of dependent on the enemy. Some of you have been there. Verse 7, behold, this is uh, talking of Judah and Israel. Their heroes cry in the streets. The envoys of peace weep bitterly. The envoys of peace, who were that? The, the, the envoy that carried that massive amount of wealth to Sennacherib. Only as they turned around from carrying it to hear the hooves of his army coming in. The highway lies waste. The traveler ceases. The economy of Israel is shut down. People are afraid to go anywhere because Assyria is destroying cities all around. Covenants are broken. Sennacherib broke the covenant. Cities are despised. The cities are destroyed. There is no regard for man. Just as we talked about, Satan has no regard for humanity at all. The land mourns and languishes. Lebanon is confounded and withers away. Sharon is like a desert. And Bashan and Carmel shake off their leaves. These are all pictures of devastation and destruction. Such is the nature of sin, isn't it? It always destroys. It always disappoints. It always leaves desolate. Such is the nature of Satan on his high horse, marching through and making game. Uh, Assyria arrogantly thinks that they have won, that their day isn't coming, but it is. But it is. What are our enemies? We have three. All right, this is important to note, and it isn't your boss. All right? Your boss isn't on the list. 
Um, it, it's not your ex and it's not your mother-in-law. Those aren't our enemies. Let's talk about them for a moment. Uh, the number one enemy I've alluded to already is Satan. Satan is our number one foe. He hates Christ, despises anyone who adheres to Jesus' law, Jesus' life, uh, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. You have a target on your back when you come to Christ. Uh, any thought that all of a sudden when you come to Christ, and many of you have come to Christ in the past few years, that all of a sudden life gets easy. It's a myth. Don't buy that. Don't buy that. So, so Satan is enemy number one. Enemy number two is the world. All right, so when we say the world, what do we refer to? We refer to the, the world under the sway of Satan. All right, world system. A worldview that uh, is really influenced by his point of view. Uh, how is that, what does that look like? It takes various forms. Typically, pride is at the very root of it. Um, racism is Satan doing his best work. Um, unfaithfulness. Uh, arrogance, greed, uh, lust, all of those as they work through the world system and the system pushes you right along and you get caught up in it. All right, so there are loads of teenagers in the service. I want you to look at me for a moment. You are so susceptible to it more than any other group of people in here. Many of our college students are back this morning, will be in the next service. You fly right into the face of the world schemes. How? There is so much influence now that just comes in through media, through social media that says this is how to live, this is how to do, this is how to think, this is how to act has nothing to do with Scripture, nothing to do with God's point of view, nor his perspective. That's the world. And the world is so influential, and the world will, uh, will creep in, and it comes in. Satan uh, is sly. He, he brings it in through the most unsuspecting avenues, through people who may not know they're under his sway. They may not realize they're doing his bidding. So you've got Satan, enemy number one, the world, enemy number two. And enemy number three is our sinful nature. Ah. Oh that we could get rid of him, right? It's who you wake up with every morning. It is if life is good all the way around, you have the capacity to blow it. Anybody with me on that? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's get up, have your quiet time, read the Bible, pray, go down Highway 70, and somebody's going 30. And, and the Holy Spirit just flies out the window. <laughs> and all of a sudden, you're, you, you know, there's three inches between you and them. And the words coming out of your mouth hopefully do not match what you're thinking in your mind. Because all of a sudden, all of that 
Or for some of you, you you have a a pill of a boss and you can pray all day long and then you go into work and you say, this way will be different. I won't let him get to me today. I won't let her just get under my skin today. Today will be different. And what happens? Oh gosh, by two o'clock, you're muttering under your breath. It's the sinful nature. It's the sinful nature. So here's the deal, folks. Please hear me. Jesus will ultimately destroy all of them, but not now. Not now. Oh, right? I mean, we all say, oh, but not now. He will ultimately destroy them all. Satan will be destroyed. The world will disintegrate. Your sinful nature, when you die, will be gone, and you will worship uninhibited in that moment. But now we struggle, we fight, we, we wrestle, uh, the, Paul says to the Ephesians, not against flesh and blood, not against your boss, your in-law, right? We struggle against principalities and spirits, things we can't see, we struggle. So I would say this morning, if you're in here and and you say, Jerry, this week, this is Christmas and uh, it's been such a struggle, could I say, welcome? You're among friends. Amen? Amen? Amen. Yes. Yes. Pressure, relieve, valve. It is. Jesus Christ came. Lord. Who's going to do that? The Lord. The Lord. We'll pick upon the fullness of that title as we move through. Secondly, you can Jesus to exalt himself. You can. Notice this. It turns into a prayer. One that is not a bad idea for you to pray or me. Oh Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Do you know what's in the background of that? God, we've stripped your temple of all its silver. God, we've taken the gold that was overlaid on the doors and we ripped it off and we gave it to us to Sennacherib. Now we wait in a barren temple for you. Be our arm every morning. Arm stands for strength. Our salvation in the time of trouble. Not a bad prayer, is it? At the tumultuous noise, peoples, some translations will render that nations flee. Tumultuous noise, what is it? They could hear the back, in the background the Assyrian army marching in and the noise of that is loud, isn't it? They could hear the noise of that army marching in. But there's a noise that is louder than the marching army. When God speaks, peoples, nations, listen. Amen? 
When he speaks, people listen, and that's what they're saying. At the tumultuous noise, nations flee. When you lift yourself up, nations are scattered, and your spoil is gathered as the caterpillar gathers, as locusts leap, it is left upon God. When you do a job, you do it right. You do it well, because you are Lord. Lord, as Lord, when you speak, your voice is loud. But there's an irony. This morning, I was on my way into my Bible fellowship group, all right, mine, when another group saw me. And under the feigning um, desire to serve me breakfast, they said, come in here. They were at the door, come in. So I go in. I have for my breakfast this morning an uncrustable all right, you've seen those things, ready-made PB&J, right? So that's what I brought for breakfast, kind of on the run, had a late night at our house. And so on the run, I have a PB&J. They woo me in with sausage and biscuits and all of this good stuff. And once I've started to eat, they say, oh, before you leave, we have questions. <laughs> okay. And for the next 10 minutes, they grilled me. Well, what about this? And why was this there? And why was this there? And all of this, you know, they're just asking me questions. No, seriously, they brought me in for breakfast. It was wonderful. But then they went after me with all of, not after me, but they asked me all of these questions. They didn't go after me. They just asked questions. And as they were asking questions, they all had to do with the birth of Jesus and how all of it unfolded. You see, there's an irony here that is hard to grasp is that Jesus was born, and this is what we touched on in there, in an unknown place, Micah 5 to you, Bethlehem too little to be among the clans of Judah, an unknown place, out of you will come one. And, and Israel didn't get it, and Jews don't get it today. Many do not. Because in exalting himself, Philippians 2 said he lowered or emptied himself. And that doesn't make sense. You see, in our culture, if you exalt yourself, it's almost always for yourself. But when Jesus exalts himself, notice how he says it. Now I will, verse 10, arise. What does that look like? Here's the closest I think I can get to it. 1999, a woman by the name of Joy Varon, 30 years old, Texas school teacher, on vacation with her family in Colorado. It was toward the end of their vacation. They're having a great time. There's her picture to the left. These are her children. We'll leave the slide right there. They're having a great time. Her kids at that time are between the ages of two and seven. Her SUV is parked. Uh, They're going for one last swim. They've done it. They're getting ready to leave. The SUV is running. Her kids run and jump in it when it slips out of gear. And when it does, Joy said, I could see it. And it was headed toward, uh, out of the parking lot, over a ravine and into uh, the valley. And I knew that my children would die. She said, all I knew to do at that point, all I knew to do was run and throw myself in front of it. And so I did. 
She said, when I threw myself in front of the SUV, there I am standing in front of the SUV. It was rolling. I didn't know what to do. My kids' eyes, she said, they looked at me as if, mom, save us. Mom, help us. And she said, I'm trying with all my might and the SUV is coming against me when I get pulled underneath the SUV and my foot gets caught up underneath it. And when it does, it, the tire turns and the tire comes and rolls over her body at that moment, crushing her lungs, breaking her back. But when it did, you'll see her in the next picture. It was just in time for her dad to make it into the door of the SUV, hit the brake, and save her three children's lives. Wow. So her children came out of the SUV. Her mom came running, gathered around her, thought that she was going to die. She says, I remember saying to my dad, uh, because the blood vessels had burst to her eyes. She was blind at that point. And she said, I knew my back was broken. If I hadn't turned my head tilted to the side, it would have caught my head and I would have been dead. And I remember saying to my dad, I'm 30. I'm, uh, my back is broken. I'm paralyzed. I'm blind. I just want to die. And dad said, no, you are dying. And she said, in that moment, I had to make a choice. Would I live now for the kids I had saved? Her husband wasn't nearby when this happened. And so she, are you ready? Exalted herself. Say, how is that? She rose. She rose up. Here is a picture now of her recently with those children. She said, when, as soon as this happened, or as I was going through therapy, uh, one of my doctors said to me, 90-some percent of all marriages that go through something like this don't make it. And her husband left her. What a prize, right? She doesn't look very exalted when you look at her, does she? She can't walk. But all of a sudden in our minds, where is she? Up here. Jesus looked at his disciples and he said, the son of man must be lifted up. And when I'm lifted up, I will do what? Draw who? All people to myself. But, you know, they must have had to think purple robe, majesty, right? They must have had to think golden crown, uh, Rome overthrown. They, they, they had no clue at that point when Jesus would be lifted up. He would be stripped naked. He would uh, be beaten until he was unrecognizable. There would be, sure enough, a crown, but it would be a crown of thorns that would come down over his head when Jesus rose to the occasion. He rose to the occasion as a mangled, beaten, almost inhumane, looking human being 
And they rushed around him, and Mary wept, and and John bemoaned the loss of his best friend. And Jesus said, John, there's your mom now. Take care of her in what I'm going through. And blood gushed from his side, and blood ran down his face. Is that exalted? Not in normal Ways of thinking exalted. But is that rising to the occasion? And all the church says, Amen. Yeah. Yeah. And and most Jews then and most now can't get that. They can't wrap their intellectual minds around that. It's what he did as Lord. Wow. It's what he did as Lord. Uh, You see, some rebel. Others reject. Some repent. Third, uh, you could trust Jesus to change your life. You can. Verse 5, the Lord is exalted for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness and he will be the stability of your times, abundance of salvation, wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. You know, Every time I read this, I can't help but stop and go. Abundance of salvation. Why do we need an abundance of it? Do you know why? We have a way too limited view of salvation today. Most of us view salvation as that point in time at which we turn from sin and turn to Christ. And certainly it is an event at which we come to Christ. But you know what salvation is? Salvation is, is today. There is the salvation that's the event. There's the salvation that's the process. That's called sanctification in theology. It, it's the part, it, it's the, the process by which you and I, day in and day out, are made more like Christ. There's an abundance of that. Have you ever felt like you may have tapped that out? I have. Have you ever felt like you've done that one time too many? You've gone there one time too many. You've, you've had that thought one time too many. You've said when you should have been quiet one time too many. You, you've sinned once too many. Have you ever had that thought? Uh, there's abundance of salvation. It, it flows into uh, daily living. You can trust Jesus to change your life. Look at uh, verse 17. Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. They will see a land that stretches afar. Here's what I've learned in my own life and in the lives of the people whom I've been privileged to lead to Christ or disciple as they are brand new believers. Before we see Christ in his glory, we have to see him in his glory. Glory. 
Before we see Christ in all of his riches, we see him in humiliation. Every time. Our sins, his forgiveness, they come glaring through. But once you see your sin, and once you see the Savior, then he'll be beautiful to you. He will. You'll behold the king in his beauty. Say, how does that look? Do you know how it looks? Sometimes it's in worship, isn't it? You're singing and you're just enraptured. And you hear the voices of the saints around you singing the songs of God. And when you do, you're like, Jesus, if you could come right now, I'd be good. Oh, this is so sweet and it's so good. Sometimes it will be alone in the quiet of your home early in the morning and and you're there and you're in his word and as you are, the spirit begins to move and begins to work and it's as if the room is full of the presence and love and light of Christ and you can't imagine being anywhere else. You behold the king in his beauty. Sometimes, sometimes, it is in a quiet moment. Other times, it's in a a large crowd. I remember being in Columbia, South Carolina, at Williams Bryce Stadium, at a Promise Keepers event. Some of you were probably there. 8 a.m., I think 40, 50,000 men began to sing, Holy, Holy, Holy. Lord God Almighty, early in the morning, my song will rise to thee. And that place just reverberated and echoed. Your eyes will behold the king. You'll see him in his beauty. You'll see a land that stretches far. All of a sudden, the trajectory of your life changes. You you see hope where there was hopelessness. You see future where there was none. You see peace where there was turmoil. You see possibility where impossibility seemed to reign. Alcoholics are alcoholics no more. The alcohol no longer grips them. Uh, the uh, folks dominated by greed or lust or uh, 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 power no longer are. You will see people's lives completely and totally change in front of you. It's wonderful to see God work in this way. How extensive is it? Verse 18, your heart will muse, muse on the terror You'll ask yourself, where is he who counted? Where is he who weighed the tribute? Where is he who counted the towers? You will see no more the insolent people, the people of an obscure speech that you cannot comprehend, stammering in a tongue that you cannot understand. They didn't understand the language of the Assyrians, and that made it all the more confusing and all the more intimidating. But in that day when the king reigns in beauty, you will look out on the enemy and go, why was I even worried? Why was I even bothered? You'll muse on the terror. You see, we can't get fully there now. But one day, 
One day, if we believe, and this was talked about in my Bible fellowship group this morning, if we believe he came the first time, we believe he's coming the second time. Amen? If we believe that he came the first time, then certainly there's a second time. If we see all of the prophecies fulfilled from the first time, what's to keep us from going to the back of the book, at the book of Revelation, where it says one day this king who came as a baby will come as this powerful, dominant, reigning king, and every eye will see him, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that he is Lord of lords and king of kings. Amen? One day we will see him reign in majesty and glory. I could just clear off a place and preach right now. One day we'll see him that way. And if we believe that he came as a baby and we see all of those things, then we don't stop here. Oh, I think as we were singing this morning, I looked out and I looked at you and you've lost loved ones this year and you sit in this place and I know the pain of Christmas without your family member. Oh, I watch you worship, and my heart is warmed as you worship a God that you know to be greater than the loss you've experienced. How could we do that? One day we'll see the king in his beauty, amen? One day we'll see him, and one day when we see him, we'll look back on the pain of life. We'll look at everything that Satan has ever done, and we'll muse on that, and we'll say, what did we think was so bad? Why? Because he's so good. Oh, he's so good. He's so good. He's so good. Verse 17, behold Zion. Oh, look out of the temple whose gold has been stripped bare, whose silver instruments are no more. That seems so lackluster. Look from that temple and behold Zion, the city of our appointed feast. Your eyes will see Jerusalem. I long for this day an untroubled habitation. An immovable tent whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. What a day that will be. But there the Lord, there the Lord in majesty will be for us a place of broad rivers and streams where no galley with oars can go, nor majestic ship can pass. What does that mean? Cities had moats around them and they were unapproachable and unattainable if the moat was clear. Jesus himself will be the moat of this city. Uh, There will be no need for light, for he himself is light. There will never be darkness, for where he is, darkness cannot be. What a place that will be. He is Lord. Will you trust him? Oh, some of you sit here and you're in rebellion and you say, No, I like my sin, I like my life. Your sin in your life will wreck you. Some of you sit here, you know him, but you're rejecting him. Why? You've chosen a path. What would I say to you this morning? If you're in rebellion, turn to him. Oh, he loves you. If you're rejecting him this morning, repent. And then the rest of you are in repentance. You've turned and you're still turning. Verse 22, or verse, yeah, verse 22, I think sums it up for us. For the Lord is our judge. Here he is. He's our judge. He's our lawgiver. He's our king. He will save us.
Do you know him? Do you know this king? Years ago, an old preacher asked that very question. It's how we're going to end today. And if you want to know the king, I'll be right down here. Check it out. Immortal, invisible, God only wise, we come to you and you are our Lord. And so we pray in this moment for those who have yet to make you Lord of their lives. They have yet to trust you. May this Christmas be the Christmas when they realize that this tiny baby came to reign, to raise himself up on our behalf. Oh, Lord, may they realize that you did not come uh, to be against them, but to be for them, to uh, wreck their lives, but to uh, restore their lives. You came to do a complete uh, remodel, a regeneration. You are a God who makes all things new. For those who have known you, but live in rejection of you, whatever sin that entangles them, may they confess it, repent of it, and turn to you. And for those who live and walked in here in repentance this morning, may our our imperfections show your perfection. May our weaknesses display your strength. May our helplessness display you as the great helper. And until we see you one day, we gladly embrace your broken body as we will tonight in worship. And we gladly drink the cup as we will tonight in worship. And we say as your people, that's my king. We're proud of you, Jesus. And we love you. And thank you for loving us. In your name we pray. And God's people say, amen. Amen. God bless you. I'll see you tonight.